Good evening, guys. Happy Tuesday night. Todd Sachs of Sachs Realty. I'm the broker and founder here. This is our second episode of Tuesday Night Live, where we talk about anything and everything real estate. And tonight, we're going to talk about mortgage forbearance. And it's a really important topic right now because you see the CARES Act, something that was protecting borrowers of government-backed mortgages, which is a huge percentage of the loans in America, basically was expiring uh, last night. So it has been extended, and we're going to talk about what forbearance really is. We're going to talk about some of the outlooks. We're going to discuss what we were all thinking in March when this whole thing was just imploding and exploding, and COVID-19 was, quite frankly, scaring the living daylights out of everybody. And tonight, I'm honored that I have a special guest. He's a friend of mine and another local business person here in Maryland. His name is David Thurston, and he's the owner and attorney of Crown Title. And Dave has been doing this stuff for a very long time. He is an expert. You're about to hear from him. He's an expert in foreclosures and forbearance, something foreclosures we want to stay away from. But we're going to talk about how the numbers are showing that things are actually better than many of the experts had predicted. Um, so Todd Sachs again, Sachs Realty. I'm the broker and founder here. We are really, um, we're a boutique brokerage here in Maryland. We're helping buyers and sellers of both residential and commercial real estate. And we've got a great reputation of doing so. I love bringing you value uh, regardless of whether you're a client or not. And if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, please take a minute to subscribe to our channel and hit that bell so you get an alert every time we post great content like this. Also, if you're watching us on Facebook, if you would like our, our Facebook page, that would be great. And drop us a comment. We will take your questions tonight. We have Melissa on deck, and Melissa is going to be looking at your comments on the social media platforms, and uh, we're going to try and get those questions answered for you tonight. Uh, if you're in another state other than Maryland, we have a broker network program all over the country. I can help you if you're buying or selling you know, or leasing, whatever it is. You drop me your information. You can also email me at TS. For Todd Sachs, TS at SachsRealty.com. Now, without further ado, I'd like to introduce to you Dave Thurston. Dave, thank you so much for joining us tonight. If you could tell our audience a little bit about you. Thanks for having me, Todd. As you said, I'm a, a real estate attorney here locally. I've been a real estate attorney for close to 30 years. I'm a member of the Maryland, D.C., and New York Bar and I have a large title company that's licensed in about 30 states nationally. And we've done a lot of foreclosure workout um, tasks for large servicers. We represented HUD for a period of time, and we've been representing Fannie Mae since 2008, really when the last crisis hit. So we got our PhD in 2008, and then the market got a little bit worse and significantly better. And now we're back into uncharted territory again. But like you mentioned, I think it's better than what people thought, and I do think we're going to come out the other side better than the predictions. Now, Dave, you're licensed in, I think you said, just about every state, the east of the Mississippi. Correct? Correct. Correct. And foreclosure has been something that you've been a big part of, like you said, So, um, and, and we were having some discussions prior to, um, so I'm really excited. We're going to dive right in, but let's first talk about what is forbearance? 
So for many of you that have heard that term but haven't actually applied for forbearance, it's where your loan servicer actually pauses your mortgage payments. And um, I think they're on a couple extensions on this right now. Uh, many got it for three months and then six months. And I think now there's really a path to actually have your mortgage payments suspended um, for up to a year. <clears throat> One thing that you have to remember is that you must repay this amount. This isn't something that goes away. Uh, it does not erase what you owe in any way. Um, and your normal interest continues to accrue. So uh, options may vary um, from non-governmental backed loans, but the CARES Act that was implemented, uh, actually, like I had mentioned earlier, expired yesterday or last night, but it was extended and uh, they extended it at least through December 31st of this year. Um, what we're talking about is government backed loans or FHA, VA, USDA, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Now, a lot of you might be thinking, what are those acronyms? Well, if you are unsure of whether you have a government-backed loan, you would check with your service loan servicer, whoever's at the, the, the heading of your statement, you would check with them to see whether you have a government-backed loan if you're unsure. Um, so like I was saying, originally you could request it for up to 180 days. And with the CARES Act, there was no additional penalties or interest other than your regular interest, uh, you know, is continuing to accrue. The other thing that is really important is that in order to be eligible for forbearance, you have to go through financial hardship as a result of COVID-19. So um, there isn't a big criteria for doing that. You basically just have to tell your loan servicer that that's what's going on. Um, there's no special documents that I know of or proof that you have to provide, um, but I, I do know that it, it has to result from COVID-19. Understand that when you repay this forbear, um, forbearance, that some servicers and one of the updates to the CARES Act is that they don't want the servicer to hit you with a lump sum at the end. At first they were saying if you extended and didn't pay your mortgage for 90 days, at the end of 90 days, you'd have this huge lump sum payment that you had to pay back and they knew that wasn't gonna work. That would be like almost immediate default. If you didn't have enough to pay mortgage payment one, two or three into your forbearance, why would you all of a sudden have a huge lump of sum? So they have told the banks or the servicers that they have to work this out with you um, to best suit your needs. Um, the questions are, you know, when you're asking them is how do you pay it back? Is it put at the end of the term? Um, can my loan be extended? Uh, is there a modification? Uh, will subsequent payments end up being higher after the forbearance to make up for it. So um, guys, you, it's important that you beware scammers. You should not be speaking with anyone about your loan or forbearance unless it's your loan servicer. So if people are calling you up, telling you they're gonna help you or whatever that is, beware of that. Make sure you're talking to your loan servicer. Also, <clears throat> after this show, we will have in the show notes contact information to reach me, David, as well as the resources that we have for you that if you're experiencing trouble, 
for example, like consumerfinance.gov forward slash coronavirus is one of the sites that you can go to. Um, and also just the last minute tip is make sure that whatever forbearance you're getting, make sure you have it in writing. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about, there's a website out there. It's the Mortgage Bankers Association website or mba.org. And it's where a lot of people go for resource to um, see what's happening in the banking world. And we're going to pull up a couple facts here on the screen. If you're watching this, you'll be able to see this. If not, um, we'll make it available for you. And, and I'm not going to read it verbatim, but I'll give you the, the gist of what it is. So basically, this was updated yesterday. All right. So uh, very current information. Uh, so the latest forbearance uh, and call volume survey revealed that a total number of loans now in forbearance remain unchanged relative to the prior week at 7.2%. Um, Dave and I were talking, he thinks that even as of today, that's come down. Um, and according to the Maryland Bankers Association estimate, 3.6 million homeowners right now are in forbearance plan. The shares break down of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac loans in forbearance. They've dropped for the 12th week in a row to 4.88%, a five basis point improvement. Ginnie Mae loans in forbearance did increase by four basis points and is at one of the highest levels at 9.58%. The forbearance share for portfolio loans and private labeled securities increased by seven uh, basis points to 10.44%. And the percentage of loans and forbearance for depository servicers increased to 7.49%. And the percentage of loans and forbearance for independent mortgage bank servicers decreased to 7.41. As you can see, all within that 7% range, thereabouts. The share of loans in forbearance was unchanged as the decline in the share of GSE loans was offset by increases for Ginnie Mae and portfolio loans and PLS loans. They were at the higher levels. The pace of new forbearance requests has been relatively flat across all investor types, but for those with GSE loans, the rate of exits from forbearance regularly exceeds the new requests. Great news, right? Um, MBA Senior Vice President and Chief Economist Mike Frattentoni, uh, this is his quotes, the exception in these trends are borrowers with Ginnie Mae loans, as we just mentioned, the loss of enhanced unemployment insurance benefits, coupled with the consistently high rate of layoffs and the uncertainty about the job market are having a disproportionate impact on FHA and VA borrowers. So let's talk about by stage. So 36.71 of total loans in forbearance are in initial forbearance plan stage, while 62.43%, which is the big bulk here, are in a forbearance extension. So about a little more than half are new to the game of forbearance. The remaining 0.86 are forbearance re-entries. Um, so, as far as weekly servicer call center volume, this is where you call up your servicer. Uh, the average percentage of servicing portfolio volume 
uh, decreased from 8.7 to 7.2%, and the average speed to answer decreased from 2.8 minutes to 2.2 minutes. The abandonment rates decreased from 5.7 to 4.9%, and the average call length increased from 7.2 minutes to 7.7 minutes. And then here we go, the loans and forbearance as a share of servicing portfo uh, portfolio volume as of August 23rd, which was the week before, was 7.2% total. And um, basically, this survey that uh, the, uh, the Mortgage Bankers Association represents 75% of the first mortgage servicing market, or about 373 million loans. So um, not as bad as a lot of people were expecting. So we want to go to Dave here and talk about Dave, when the pandemic first happened, when they first started shutting things down, you, me and Mark, right? And um, I think that was it. I think Bob. it was and Bob, Bob, right? Bob and Bob. And so we all sat down, we, we called this emergency and you can find this in a video on YouTube. Um, it's still up but we called for this emergency like podcast to talk about like, Oh my gosh, what's going to happen. And then the next day, uh, Joe, who's kind of handling our content creating and uh, you know, he's actually working in the office tonight and he's putting this podcast together. The next day he called in sick. So he said, Oh man, I think I have a fever. I'm breaking out sweats. And, uh, and I was like, Oh no, this is like six o'clock in the morning. And I had to call these guys and be like, Hey guys, uh, by the way, Joe is out <laughs> sick. And we were all just sitting in the office together uh, in really close quarters, no social distancing, no masks, spinning all over each other. But anyway, so Dave, I'm really excited that we could have this follow up here almost six months later and uh, we're all doing much better. So um, give us some points of how we are in such good shape and things that have happened that have worked. And, and, and this is despite what side of the aisle you're on. We're not turning this into a political message, but there are some facts that we just know about. And Dave, just, you know, why are things better than expected? Well, a couple points, Todd. I think, first of all, great information you gave out. I, when people call me, I always say for, forbearance is not forgiveness. But the good news is they're not going to make you pay a lump sum when this is over. So this hardship has affected some industries and some areas of our economy and some areas of our country more, you know, more so than others. Um, I think we're in better shape uh, than anybody thought because we're resilient. I think that, that small business owners that uh, could, could shift gears and go to different products or go to different services or do certain things cut expenses a certain way, they came out of this much better. Um, you know, I told you when we were talking today that, you know, I got a, uh, a friend that was importing um, high level fabric to make suits and dresses. And he switched in April just to import fabric to make PPP and other garments that the healthcare industry would need. And he's going to have his best year ever in 2020. So that they're the kind of stories I think that, uh, you know, or why we're, we're a great country. And I'm always optimistic on our country and, and on our people. So 
I think that's important. I told you the other story. I got a, uh, a senior vice president at a regional bank here. They had 300 million uh, commercial loans in forbearance in April, and they had two loans left, less than 5 million out of 300 million are currently in forbearance. Everybody else is in, is, uh, is current, is current and paid. So there are a lot of great, there are a lot of great signs. Obviously travel, the restaurant owners are in really bad shape. Most, some of them travel really bad shape, hotels, those types of things. But most of, most of it, people were resilient and they got through it. So it is interesting. I mean, as it, it definitely, there are definite winners and losers in all of this. I mean, that is the sad part that, you know, as a result of everything that's happened, um, there, there definitely have been winners or losers. I mean, it, it's really, it is sad for our local um, uh, business owners and local employers that are experiencing most of this hardship. Um, one of the things, let's talk about, you had mentioned a number of um, foreclosures. So let's just talk, advance a little bit about the foreclosure side of things, uh, because we said that we didn't think it was going to be as bad. I know when we talked a couple weeks ago, you had said that, and even tonight you updated that number that in 2008, 1.7%, I think it was, of the loans went into actual foreclosure. Correct. And I think it got to two. I think the highest it ever got, Todd, was about two, three, or two, four in 09 and 10. But they, it was a different market then. I think that they were more, the credit was easier to get back then. I think a lot of those loans were B and C credit loans, whereas banks have been very strict with credit since 2010. And I think that's alleviating some of the problems. And I know from, from where I sit, I don't think we're going to come out of here. And, the, the foreclosure, there's been a moratorium on foreclosures now extended to December 31st. I know that uh, Mnuchin was in front of Congress today and they were debating the next uh, CARES Act package. I think the Democrats wanted it to be $3 trillion. I think the Republicans wanted $1 trillion. And of course, they'll, they'll most likely settle in the middle. They'll extend all the provisions and then the, the, the devil will be in the details. Where did the $2 trillion go? And you know, we'll go to Main Street or we'll go to Wall Street. And I think that's a misguided way to explain that problem. Um, you know, everybody's dependent on Main Street and everybody's dependent on Wall Street, whether you think so or not. And, you know, you, the business you're in, look at the supply chains that have been disrupted by COVID. You know, those companies need money to, to increase capacity because if you're building a house, your lumber cost is up, what, 20% now because of supply chain. Yeah, it could At be least. thirty or forty percent. Right. So, so we're all dependent. We're all interdependent because we have a global economy. So, I think the 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 media puts things out there that, that aren't quite explained and aren't quite accurate, and I think it's unfortunate. So, do you think foreclosures are going to top 08? 09? I think, I think we're going to be close but I don't think we're going to get above 08 or 09, but I do think it's going to be close. Now, if you, you asked me that question a month ago, I thought we were going to be at 3%, but I really think because of all the consumer protection uh, laws that were put in in 08, 09, and 010, and the better evaluation by the banks of the credit worthiness of the purchasers, I do think now that that number's going to 
I think it's going to probably be at the 08, 09 number. But, you know, it's going to be interesting. I know we're going to maybe touch on this later. There's a great migration starting from the cities out to the counties for various reasons. And, you know, will there be strategic defaults of those properties in the city if those values decline? That will be interesting to see what, what, what comes of that. Yeah. Well, we are going to get to that. And real quick, I do want to take a moment because we do have a couple questions that have come in or actually a question and a statement. And maybe you have something that you can add to this. And by the way, guys, if you're, if you're watching us, we'd love to uh, answer your questions or address your comments. Uh, this is interactive and you're very important to us. And this is why we're doing this is for you. So uh, if you could ask your questions, we would love that. So Clark has asked from Facebook, um, he says, it seems like all forbearance will be added to the end of the loan, extending the loan terms, your thoughts. Maybe. I think the big issue that they're going to have is if someone misses six months or a year of payments, they have an escrow account that's short. So they may want to try to recapitalize your payment over a two or three year period just to make up for the escrows. That's a cash flow issue with the banks, unless the treasury is going to say, we're going to give you money at 0%. You know, it don't have to worry about the clerical function of doing that. So that'll be the one hurdle that'll have to get over. As far as extending the uh, maturity date, they could just not extend the maturity date and make a balloon payment due at the end that has the payments. But I do think that there will be pressure from the White House, regardless of who gets elected, that the, the payments will be tacked on to the end and they won't see a significant increase in anybody's monthly payment. Yeah, and some of the other options that are on the table, but they have to qualify is that they could refinance um, or, you know, um, rework that loan. So known as a, lo a loan modification. But again, these would have to be things that the bar as a borrower, you would have to qualify for. Uh, but great question. We appreciate that. Um, Christopher has said that a forbearance will hurt your credit score and your ability to refinance or purchase a new home. And he says to avoid it at all costs. Thoughts on that, Dave? Well, they're not going to report your, if you're in forbearance of a government sponsored loan, which is the vast majority, I think seven out of 10 people have government, have loans that are being underwritten or, or serviced by government, or backed by a government entity. And as you said, it's FHA, VA, Fannie, Freddie, Ginny. So those loans, they'll, they'll report to your credit that you're, you were in forbearance, but they're not going to report you later delinquent. And then when your forbearance period ends, as long as you make those next three payments, they should not have any adverse effect on your credit, but you need to monitor that. And I do think that there'll be programs to allow you to purchase or refinance as long as you, as long as you uh, kept your word and made those, those three payments coming out of there. Remember, and this is a little different than, than what 0809 was. You know, you, you, can, you can look at the 0809 issues differently. You can say, well, it was, the hedge, it was Wall Street's fault because they loosened up the credit restrictions. Or you could say it was the White House's fault because they encouraged it based on certain policies that they implemented. You could say it's the consumer's fault because they took the risk. But this situation, this is something no one could have predicted. And it's something that, that unfortunately has been 
difficult, like you said, Todd, on, on there have been winners and losers. And unfortunately, a lot of people are feeling the pain with this. So I think from a consumer protection standpoint, in this new kinder, gentler America that we have, I do think these people will come out okay. But I would not be concerned um, about the credit uh, issue at this point. Based on what I'm reading, you're going to probably be okay with that. Yeah, and, and Christopher, we really appreciate that comment. And I think the important thing, and, and maybe, and, and I'm not talking with you, but I think that um, <clears throat> some people might think that they will do this whether they need forbearance or not to maybe bank some money or save some money. Um, and I think that's not a good idea. So I think that, you know, it's important to use the program that you need. And then at that point, the upside is at least having a forbearance on your credit report is better than having those delinquencies, um, you know, being reported when you're going one times 30 or 60 or 90 days past due. So I think it's really balancing, you know, the best of the current situation that you're dealt with and that it is a real situation. <clears throat> and I think like David just said, the difference between this and, and really 08 is that this is not a housing crisis. I think that's important to remember. This is a job crisis. This is where we were shut down. So we're talking about people that couldn't go to work. And I think that is why the government had to step up and really do what they did to inject the money into the hands of the people to try and lessen this impact. And again, whether you we're not turning it into a political debate on whether you agree with things or didn't agree with it, but this was a really scary situation. And when you're shut down and you're not making the, the payments or you're let go as a result of your company that you were working for going out of business or laying you off, whatever that reason is, and two people are, you know, really responsible for the mortgage and they're buying that way. Guys, I'm a real estate broker. I see it. You know, we see that people are buying things, houses with very little to no money down. And they're getting, you know, what, um, you know, grants are available or seller concessions. So a lot of people, they're buying these houses with two incomes. So even one income has really thrown them off to where they can't make their mortgage payment. And, you know, and, and this is something that is an option. And chances are these people are under a federally um, insured or backed mortgage and they do have the ability to take advantage of this really no penalty uh, forbearance. So um, again, if you have, we appreciate your questions and your comments if you keep them coming. Um, Dave, let's talk about servicers because a lot of times people don't really know what a servicer is. Yeah, a, a servicer is really like a middle a middleman, like a bookkeeper. That's basically co collecting your monthly check, paying your whatever bills you've escrowed for, and then paying the owner of the note the fees that they've earned, and they're keeping a, a, a fee to do that. So I think one of the things that's really frustrating, Todd, we, we lived through the 08, 09, 2010 market where there were a lot of short sales, and people really didn't understand why they couldn't get their servicer to help them or – they had a first with Bank of America and they had a second with Bank of America and they couldn't negotiate the short sale because the second wouldn't budge. But what they didn't realize was Bank of America didn't own either note. And whatever hedge fund or whatever entity owned that second, 
the servicing provisions in that note did not allow the bank to adjust it. So you have to really understand the market. So you're making a payment to someone that really doesn't own the note. There's someone else that owns the note and they, they really call the final shots, especially with the non government backed loans. So if you're, if you're in the other 30 or 35% bucket where you have a, a loan that's really owned by a large hedge fund on wall street or a large financial service company, their servicing agreement will dictate how much of a discount they would take or how long they'll let you forbear before they foreclose. That's really a private contractual matter. And it can't be the white house and Congress can influence those companies by, you know, going into a room and putting an arm around them and tell them what they feel is right, but they really can't interfere with a private contract. So with the servicers, kind of explain what happens when there is forbearance. You know, we had spoke earlier and you were talking about just shortly uh, ago, you were talking about escrow, um, which covers the borrower's taxes and insurance, homeowner's insurance. A lot of times, most, I think all the times, um, all the time that is actually escrowed because they want to make sure, you know, if you don't pay your taxes, they take first position. So really that's like, you know, the, the highest um, level of lien is not paying your property tax. So the, the servicers want to make sure that they're collecting that from you and a certain portion of your payment is actually going in escrow to cover that tax bill um, that's paid probably twice annually. And then um, there is your homeowner's insurance. So they want to make sure that you don't stop paying your homeowner's insurance because if you do and something happens to your home, they're out. So they're collecting that money. So let's talk about what happens when someone goes into three or six months or a year of forbearance. Are the servicers picking up that check? Yeah, they're obligated under the servicing agreement to pay the taxes and insurance, and they're obligated under the servicing agreement to satisfy any lien that would be superior to the mortgage that's recorded. So, yes. And that's where I think the cash flow crunch will be. So it'll be interesting when people come out of modifications, do they change the monthly payment just to make up the escrows over a two-year period or three-year period? Or are they going to be able to get low interest or zero interest loans from the treasury to, to make up for that deficit in cash flow? And I think there was a time sometime in May where the, where the rates shot up a point in one day because the servicers got wind that they weren't going to be able to tap into the necessary funds to cover these deficits and they weren't going to buy or service any more loans. And then, you know, our Congress and the white house worked this out with them and the rates came back down to a normal rate, but a normal, a normal market uh, market condition rate. But that's the, that's the interesting question, but yes, because they sign a contract that they're responsible to pay it. So what happens if they can't? I mean, is there, you know, when, when a servicer, is there a certain, um, well, first let's talk about where do servicers get their money? So where do they get the money to back this potential deficit? Well, they're, they're getting paid a percentage of the, of the monthly payment to do that. Well, and, there's fi- and they have financial models that say normally only 2% of the, the loans are in default or aren't paying so or one one and a half percent are in default and don't pay so they they build that in their price and as long as the market doesn't have a 
a crazy issue like we have now, it works out okay. But what's happening now is, as you said, it's the default rates normally, you know, Todd, since oh, I think since 16, it's averaged a half of 1%. So figure even, even though we're saying 7% is good, it's 14 times higher than what it normally is. So yes, their, their financial model no longer works. So that money's got to come from somewhere. Can they go to the owner of the, of the note and say, now you got to come up with the money somehow? I don't know, but it's either got to come from there or it's got to come from the treasury. So, you know, when you talk about Wall Street and Main Street and bank bailouts, you have to understand that the bank bailout may actually be helping you if you haven't paid your payment and your taxes are due. So it's a very uh, delicate situation. Do you think there will be winners and losers in the servicers? No, because I think I don't think the government can let them fail. I think the housing market's too crucial to all parts of our economy. And we have a tremendous shortage. I mean, you probably know the numbers better than me, but we have a tremendous shortage of housing in the United States right now. We certainly have a terrific shortage of affordable housing. So to keep every component working and keep everybody at the table can only benefit everybody in the long run. So I don't think they'll fail. I think that like everyone else, they'll get, they'll figure out how to get through it. Yeah. Well, I guess that's what I, what I kind of mean by fail that they'll get bailed out. Um, you know, whether there'll be a need for uh, certain servicers or banks to get bailed out here, because, you know, if this goes on for 12 months or this type of, like you said, 14 times the normal rate of delinquency and they're covering those costs. I mean, I don't know how that where the money's going to come from, uh, but to get back to your point about middle housing, uh, middle housing, we are in a major crisis all over the U.S. Um, and, you know, I can speak to Maryland. Uh, we just went over these numbers in a sales meeting uh, when we were looking at July. Now we're in the process now of deciphering August numbers. But in July, when you compared year over year numbers all through the pandemic, we didn't drop at all. Our sales stayed at least the same as last year, or which is a very good market, or increased in a lot of the local markets. We cover nine primary local markets here in Maryland. So we're tracking those numbers. They're the big markets that really wrap DC and Baltimore. And, um, and again, I mean, the numbers were high. The difference was, was we've been operating with, in some cases, less than half the inventory that we had from year over year, just last year in 2019. And what that means is really um, that middle housing market. So that's even lower. So the available middle housing, the affordable housing, and there's tons of reasons, you know, why we're not making more affordable housing because of regulations and things. And we've even spoken with uh, uh, Ben Carson, who's the secretary of HUD. I, I had an opportunity to chat with him. And even he says we need to cut some of the red tape, but that's a different topic. But yeah, we're in a major housing crisis and of middle housing. And what that means is very stressful for buyers. And it's causing buyers to really pay a lot more for the house, which, you know, now we're starting to see appraisal issues. So, you know, and, and as this forbearance is being closely monitored and the uncharted waters of where we may be going with this 
as far as delinquencies or foreclosures, I see where that appraisal becomes even more critical. Because what happened in 08, and I was personally involved with this, was that the appraisals were whatever they needed to be. So at that point, I mean, we were running such a crazy muck that especially in 05 and 06, that it was like, well, where does it need to be? And we had all kinds of different loans and arms and things were exploding. And what happened was the banks and a lot of these banks are no more, right? A lot of these investors, they're gone. I mean, we can look at Countrywide, huge company that's out of business. And uh, as a result of the foreclosures, and a lot of it had to do with inflated housing prices. Then we had a sort of deflation in the housing market. And that coupled with the fact that you could not get out from underneath of your mortgage is when we saw people just walking away. And, and guys back in 08, I can tell you, I know somebody who lived in their house for 10 years without making a mortgage payment. So when we talk about forbearance and we go back to the 08 crisis and the reason was just like Dave had said, what happened was you had these second mortgages, these HELOCs or whatever it was. And basically in order for them to foreclose, number one, they had to find your loan. They had to find the original documentation because the documents were gone, right? They were in boxes somewhere. Somebody was adopting a, a bank that went in default. So they were getting all their loans. They had to look through all of it, find the documents. Then they had to actually go and find the second and ask them to forgive the second so that they could even foreclose on the loan. So we were talking about years of, um, you know, disaster. And I think Dave, there are a lot of, um, Aren't there a lot of protections out there for the lender now to fast track that when we end up getting to the ones that will be foreclosed? Yeah, like, well, I'll talk about locally here in Maryland. I think if you talk to most attorneys that do foreclosures, they're going to tell you it's going to take nine months to a year to get a foreclosure through now because the, the policy changed in 08 or 09, maybe 2010 was when it changed where there's a mandatory mediation for the consumer. There's an extra level of notices. Um, but, you know, Todd, it's going to be interesting as far as values holding, you know, all the banks and all the uh, financial service companies that bet there was not a housing bubble in 07, 08, 09 got murdered. But if you look at it here, because of the shortage of inventory, and the number I saw, you said half, and you're right. I mean, the number I saw on June 30th of uh, 19... 2019, there were 26,000 homes for sale in the state of Maryland. And this year on June 30th of 20, there was 12,000. So almost 40, you know, 40 percent of what it was. So the other thing, too, I think is affordability. I don't remember the rates, what the rates were back in uh, 08, 09 or whenever they received these. But like you said, most people took arms, but the rates were adjusting to six, seven, eight percent, you know, here people I think that are in forbearance still have a three, three and a half percent mortgage and people will be able to get, if, if you're in the market now, you can, you know, I'm not a mortgage guy, but I'm seeing a lot of 2.75s on my note agreements for my settlement. So that house is just a, a much easier note and it's a much easier monthly, monthly payment. So 
I think within reason, the values will hold. And I know on your side, you're seeing 10 offers on one house and escalation clauses and all these, but even if the value's up 10, 20, 30,000, because the rate's so cheap, I do think the value will hold. Now, if it gets much more than that, obviously, and you get a hardship, then you know those that's going to cause some trouble. Yeah, well, I can tell you in 06, I bought my home and um, I think we were right at six and a half percent, somewhere around there. It was not too far afterward. I was able to refinance for four and a half percent. And um, and I mean, they, you know, still good, uh, affordable financing options. I think, and we can talk about that for a minute before we get into the migration that you were talking about and the mass exodus of some of the major cities. Um, you know, let's talk about where you think the rates are going to go. I have my opinion, uh, but I'd like to hear yours. So, um, do you think? I know they say, you know, you according to the the Mortgage Bankers Association, they say they have to keep rates low. Um, do you agree with that or do you see where they start to creep up? Well, they're putting so much money into the, into the system. I think the rates will stay low. And I can tell you, I was on a conference call with a, a very well-respected economist last week. He's on the, on the side that he thinks the 30-year rate will go below two and a half next year. Now, I can tell you Fannie Mae put out a prediction that they believe 2020 will close where the average 30-year mortgage was at 3.4%. That's because early in the year, they were at three and a half or three, 3.75. But they think next year's average mortgage rate, mortgage rate will be 3%. So they think in 2021 that the rates will stay around three. Depending on program and credit, it'll be a 275 maybe on the good side and three a quarter on the bad side and it'll fluctuate some. If you watch the 10-year treasury bill, they can't get that to move. <laughs> you know, they, they, the banks would love it to move so they could charge more, but they can't get it to move. And I know a lot of banks are rewriting their documents on these arms and these, these loans where the, the, they're putting a, a floor of zero in because they were afraid that the actual Fed funds rate would go below zero, would go to negative. So I think for 2021, they'll stay very low. And I think, you know, I, I look at it like, yes, it's very unique time. We have a seller's market because it's low inventory. We have a buyer's market because they have better buying power. So the negotiations will be interesting, but it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very rare time that we could look a buyer in the face and look a seller in the face and say it's a great time to sell and it's a great time to buy. But I, I'm, I keep telling all my friends, you're, you can get a 2.75% a interest rate, you're going to regret not buying real estate in five or 10 years. Oh, I agree with that. I just, the, the question is, you know, will we see, and that's the big question, will we see foreclosures? You know, uh, if we still see uh, next year, once forbearance goes away, um, if we still see where we get to 08, 09 numbers of, you know, 2% foreclosures, that will be an enormous amount of inventory that does hit the market. And then, of course, the question will be, will prices go down? Um, I've been in this business long enough, over 30 years, I've been serving the, the, um, the residential and commercial industry in one aspect or another as a builder, a contractor, developer. <clears throat> and I can tell you that um, 
I think personally that we're going to see inventory, middle housing inventory coming on the market. I think it's a big race to produce more single family uh, housing, affordable housing. <clears throat> but as far as interest rates, my prediction is I think you're right. I think I think in 21, we'll still stay low because we'll have to. Uh, we'll have to stimulate the market. We'll have to keep it going. And we will have to continue to absorb or at least make available the ability to purchase any defaulting property. I think that's going to be important that we don't let it get to the point of 08, 09, where, you know, at least in our area, I can speak to, I mean, I was buying houses that had been foreclosed on in really decent areas for $50,000, $60,000 a house. You know, you can't touch that same shell for less than one thirty now. So that was not that long ago. And the result was because the, the market was falling, the bottom was falling out so badly. So I do think that we will need to keep interest rates low, but I think we're almost at the bottom. And again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't think that um, we'll go negative. And I don't think we'll get much lower than where we are right now. So I agree with you, Dave. I think that now is the time to buy. And I think more importantly is in the next three to five years, we'll see five to six interest percent interest rates again. That's my prediction. Um, and I think the reason is going to be because we need, we, we're going to need some cash in our, in our banks. And uh, the only way to get cash in the banks is to pay cash. So if you want investors to put their real money back into deposit accounts again, we're going to have to raise rates in order to have that happen. So again, just um, now real quick. Um, so we have another comment uh, from Clark from Facebook. He says, not sure we can survive another 08, 09 won't be pretty. I agree. At least I don't want to see that. Just like I don't want to see another twin blizzard that we had in 2010. I would like to be retired before that happens and somewhere where it doesn't snow. Um, and then also Clark agrees that rates would be good next year in the three. So guys, cheap money right now. If you can buy, you need great representation. If you're looking for it, Certainly, you can reach out to me, Todd Sachs here at Sachs Realty, and, uh, and Dave Thurston would be glad to uh, give you legal advice on your real estate purchasing, help you title it, and help you get that thing closed. So um, we're going to make sure that you have all of our information. So now uh, we're coming up on about 14 minutes or so. Let's turn, Dave, to what you had kind of snuck in there about migrations from cities number one the landlords i'm a landlord in baltimore city I have properties in the city but think about the landlords in new york think about the landlords in uh la in san francisco these cities of mass exodus um what happens with them dave well, it's interesting, you know, Todd. I'm at a at a really interesting time in my life, and I have three three sons. One is 29, one is 25, and one is 23. So, because of that, I'm in touch with a lot of younger people, and I coached basketball for 25 years here locally. So, I still talk to a lot of younger people, and and so many of my former players went to school and then went to Wall Street, and they've been home for six months working out of their mom and dad's house. 
And a lot of these guys were spending four and five thousand, you know, with a group of guys, four or five, six thousand dollars a month in rent in certain cities, San Francisco, New York. They're not going back. I mean, they're they're able to work remotely. Their bosses are convinced they can work remotely. And what they're starting to do is look at a two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand dollar house in the Baltimore suburbs. So we've done so many first-time home buyer uh, closings recently for kids that we've known and we had a great program set up for them. So I think that's one part of the migration. And I think, I mean, obviously that is a COVID phenomenon because maybe upper management and HR in some of these areas didn't think they could handle business and serve clients and be profitable remotely. Now they figured it out and, and, and they can, maybe they're not as productive, but they're close enough. And now they can downside their commercial build, their commercial building. And then people, you know, people, I want walkability. I want to live and walk to work. I'm going to walk to a restaurant. Well, you, you know, you're not going to be working there anymore. You're not going to be going into that office. So I really worry. I look at Baltimore. It's, it's got a small business district, but I really worry about its health over the next 10 years and how do you reinvent that? I mean, look at what happened to Harbor Place and then does that problem grow out now? Other, other areas off there are great little areas to be, but I, I see... I see it, um, uh, and and for unfortunately for political reasons, I think that a lot of people look at the the way government is conducted in those areas and safety and health issues, and they're coming to the suburbs, and uh, it breaks my heart because I'm a city guy. I, I grew up close to the city, and I'm down there all the time. But I think it's our reality. I think it's people are coming to the suburbs for a lot of reasons, and I think it's the perfect storm. I think it's it's expensive tax wise down there. Just look at Baltimore, for example. Taxes are expensive. You don't feel safe. And now your employer doesn't need you there anymore. And you talk about the businesses. I mean, think about, and this is all across the country, think about the absence of baseball and now the absence of football. I mean, we have the stadium in Baltimore and all the high rents around that stadium that these restaurants and bars and hoteliers um, are, are paying you know, for this top dollar real estate to be there and then these people aren't there. So you know, how long does it take before you can rebuild that or how much do you need to sustain um, you know, your expenses and things like that? And yeah, and I and I hear you. I mean, the, the city is expensive. You know, one of the biggest things, I mean, I pay, you know, in Baltimore City, I pay outrageous taxes for my properties. And and these are, you know, uh, very nice properties, things, properties that have been 100% renovated, every one of them. And uh, lead's been abated in 100% of them. And, um, you know, and we see where the water bills, and this is a little off topic, but now water bills and sewer bills are combined. But now in Baltimore, they charge that every month. So now they're charging administrative fees. I've gone on to my properties and looked, I'm the only one on the whole street paying the water bill. And then you look at some of these properties, you have $25,000 water bills that they're behind in a house. So, you know, and, and we have it to where, per tenant in a house is anywhere from 30 to $50 a month water expense. So if you have two people or three people, you're looking at 90 to $150 a month water bill. Um, so it is, it's expensive. So when you're looking at the millennial buyers, you know, the, 
it's funny because the National Association of Realtors published in 2019 that 40% of the buyers were millennials, first time buyers in 2019. So when you're looking at these buyers, these younger people buyer, buying, they can't afford this kind of tax bill or this kind of, you know, it really does cripple them, their ability to be affordable. So what's happening is we are seeing now that people aren't, you know, working or working in the office or that they can work from home, that they are moving out into the suburbs, into rural America um, for affordability reasons. But what happens now? Let's talk about what happens to that real estate? It's, inter it's an interesting question because on the residential side, the prices will have, to, will have to decline. On the commercial side, a lot of that space is very difficult to retool. If you got a 15-story building a block from Harbor Place and you're 30% rented or 25% rented, what do you retool that building to be? So it's, a, it's going to be a big challenge. I will tell you, we, we talked a little bit about banking and the, the balance sheets of the banks and will the banks be bailed out. I can tell you banks that have a large amount of loans extended to commercial buildings are nervous. And, you know, one executive told me, I think in May, 30 to 35% of their commercial building portfolio was in default. So in forbearance. Well, well, technically, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because they don't have the protections that the consumers have. So, you know, will they come out of it? I don't know. If, if you're if you're a large company, we've already became, unfortunately, because of our tax structure and our safety issues, we've already became a satellite company town, right? We had, I think when I worked at Ernst & Young back in the late 80s, there was 25 Fortune 500 companies in Baltimore, and I think there's one or two left. And the one or one one is one is fading fast. We won't mention any names, but um, so we become a satellite company town, and then this hit now is is uh, I worry about the business district, and I and I hope I'm wrong, but I'm I'm really concerned about it. Yeah, likewise, I've been in commercial real estate for quite some time. I invest in commercial. I own commercial real estate, and absolutely, it is a. It is a scary time depending on the sector. I think office buildings really will be repurposed. Uh, a lot of people aren't renewing their leases. Um, you know, we are actually looking at uh, clients and helping them renegotiate leases. And the landlords are paying attention because what are they going to do? So we're actually going in and asking for forbearance in, in, in lease and also um, you know, reduction in lease rents amount, rent amounts. And the way we're looking at it is going in and saying, hey guys, look, if they go out of business or default, what's going to happen to your space? Number one, you're going to have to spend money in tenant improvements. Number two, how long is it going to sit vacant? You at least have somebody here and maybe they've been a tenant for 10, 12, or 14 years. They're going through a hard time and they don't want to do anything. I mean, I understand, guys, that, you know, we're all in this together and you have mortgage payments as well, but you really need to think smart through this. You need to talk to professionals like ourselves and, uh, and see what your options are. So, um, Dave, parting thoughts? 
we've, we've covered a lot of information. Like you said, I'm here to help if anybody ever needs to, to talk to me. And I appreciate you having me on. And it's been an interesting uh, five or six months. But, I, you know, watch unemployment rates. If unemployment rates continue to be not, they're still high traditionally. But if they're, you know, the prediction was they'd be 20 to 25 percent. They're right around 10. If that number continues to get better, we get through this election, hopefully, and get some resolution on on some things and and uh, come out of this thing strong, I think, in 2021. So hopefully get a cure and a vaccine, which I think everything's pointing to. We'll have a cure hopefully by Christmas or a vaccine by Christmas. And if that happens, I think 2021 and 2022 could be great. And I hope, I really hope long term, we really take a hard look at our supply channels and our supply lines and bring manufacturing back. You know, I I don't need a, a tax cut for myself, but I would love to see the government put some type of incentives in to bring in manufacturing jobs back over here, pay people an honest living to do that instead of these third world countries where they're, they're just enhancing the, the conditions over there and not helping them and uh, bring that back here so we can control the supply lines and control our own future. That's the one thing I, I worry about. And I hope COVID's taught us that we have to, we have to be more self-reliant in the future. And I hope we get back to that point. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for that. And, uh, you know, I'd like to say, guys, <clears throat> we are of a great people and a great country, and we are resilient. And, you know, we're all here together. We're all in this situation together. And uh, it's never really been a more important time to support, like Davis said, our local businesses, our local owners. I think that we all uh, do what we can and do our part, and we'll continue to do that. I think that we will see, you know, it wasn't that long ago when I was a kid um, and that things were stamped made in the USA and that really meant something. It's been a long time since we've seen that. I'd love to see it again. I know that we certainly have here in Maryland and many parts of the, the country, we have great ports. We do have the ability to ship products. We do have the ability to make them and maybe that's the best use for our cities that we can actually turn our cities into manufacturing hubs. And that at least like in the port of Baltimore, that we can get products and goods out of Baltimore if we're making them there and ship them all over the country and world. Guys, as we wrap up here, I want to thank you so much for your time and watching this video. I also want to say again that all of our contact information, it will be in the show notes. David is a great resource. He is a trusted resource. He knows what he's doing. Um, I've seen him firsthand help personal friends and clients and um, and and he you know he's great to reach out to um, if you guys are looking no matter where you're looking at, at seeing this video or audio listening to this audio I'm here for you as well <clears throat> so I can help you all over the country uh, I am licensed uh, here in Maryland to transact if you live in Maryland and you're looking for buyer, seller, or tenant representation of both commercial and residential real estate, we can help you directly. Uh, if you're in another state, I have a broker network all over the country. I am glad to pair you up with somebody that could help you uh, if you just reach out to me. My email, everything will be below. You give us some time to update this video uh, and put that in the show notes. And guys, thank you so much. God bless everybody and have a great night. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Sachs Realty, Maryland broker number 607720, office number 443-318-4514, equal housing opportunity.